Well, thank you, Brian, and good morning, Chapelwood. It is greetings from the saints at Castleton Community Church. I know they are praying for you this morning uh, as well. It's my honor to be with you, and I know Dan really hoped to be back in the pulpit today, but I'm super thankful for the opportunity to preach God's word to you, and just thankful for the relationships that uh, the Indianapolis churches have together, that we're able to care for one another um, in this way. If you didn't know, Dan and I served back uh, together at College Park in 2014 before any of us had kids and when I had hair, it was a great time. Uh, uh, Dan and Emily have been super dear friends uh, of my wife Jessica and I's for a long time and they have modeled for us and have taught us so much, especially modeled us what it looks like to trust the Lord in all seasons of life and for that we are eternally grateful for Dan and Emily and their, their family. Well, church, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 6, verses 43 and 45, just a few verses. So if you you have your Bibles, please turn there. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 and 45. And we're looking at a passage uh, right kind of near the end of Jesus' sermon, what has been traditionally called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. And it's going to call us to examine what we truly treasure. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. This is what God's word says. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we we pause now not just merely out of habit or tradition, but because we believe that unless your spirit opens our hearts to understand your word, we would have no ears to hear or hearts to believe it. Therefore, we, we ask that uh, the light of Christ, the light of his words, would expose the dark parts of our hearts so that you may grant us the gift of repentance and bear the fruit of righteousness you've prepared for us to walk in. Thank you for the grace that covers all our sin and the joy of knowing that we are yours forevermore. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Each summer, I am confronted with a fierce and resilient enemy. This formidable foe stares at me when I leave for work in the morning and greets me when I come back home in the evening. Each day, he reminds me of my failures of summers gone by and the labor that I must soon undertake. I wish I could ignore this this enemy, but I know if I do, he won't just go away, but he will bring many more of his kind with him. Do you know the enemy which I speak of? Yes, the weeds that infest my flower beds. 
If your uh, landscaping looks anything like mine, these weeds rear their ugly little heads and inevitably I'll get maybe so tired of staring at them, I'll find time to brave the heat of the summer and to go to battle with this horde of weeds. But as you know, anytime you pull weeds, you have the option of doing this two ways. You can do it the hard way or the easy way, the right way or the wrong way. The right way would be, you know, taking a trowel or a shovel and digging down right to the roots. Then pulling up the weed. But that takes a little longer. Or you can do it the fast way, an easier way, by just pulling the tops of the weeds off that stick above the ground. Now initially, you won't be able to tell which strategy I used. But in a few days, the quality of my work will be exposed. Both my wife... And all my neighbors, as they walk by my yard, will they'll see whether I settled for the quick fix or I got down to the root. Brothers and sisters, in our passage this morning, Jesus tells us a parable. A parable that exposes not just the quality of our work, but the quality of our character. Jesus is going to make us all very uncomfortable as he forces us to examine the deepest treasure of our hearts and the fruit that it produces in the world. And as we enter this uncomfortable exercise of examining what our works say about our hearts together this morning, I pray that we would be both encouraged by the good work the Spirit of Christ has produced through us, and also that you'd be equipped to address the area of your hearts where Christ may not be treasured. And we do this not to earn a right standing with God that is already ours in Christ, but in hopes that we might more evidently proclaim the glory of the God who saved us. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, we're just going to look at this passage in two parts. It's a quick one. Uh, first, we're going to look at Jesus' parable of the trees and the treasure. So trees and treasure, verses 43 and 45. And then we'll look to apply Jesus' teaching as we look at our words and worship. So trees and treasure, words and worship. Let's first look at that first part of the parable in verse 43. It says this again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. You can see by the first word in this verse, 43, the word for, that it is telling us that this passage is connected to what Jesus has already been, been teaching. And anytime you read your Bibles and you see words like for, therefore, in order to that, it's often important and it's a signal to you to make sure you understand how this passage is connected to the one before it, to really understand this passage meaning. And this passage is found near the end, as I said, of one of Jesus' most famous sermons. And in this sermon, Jesus has called his disciples to pray for their enemies, to be merciful as God has been merciful to them, to give and forgive in great measure. And Jesus is also warned against many dangers, dangers of judgmentalism the peril of bad teachers, and the hypocrisy of pointing out other sin before you yourself have pulled out the sin that is sticking out of your own eye like a log. Now Jesus, in this parable, takes the warning even further by simply not just identifying the good and bad examples to pursue in the world or to avoid as his disciples, but teaching us that how we treat our enemies, how we forgive, how we judge others, is an outward manifestation of a much deeper reality. That our words and our actions reveal what is in our hearts. 
Now, I know there is still, it still feels like summer out there right now, but our family just can't wait till fall. We love fall. And we love fall so much that even yesterday we went to the cider mill already. We love the cider mill. We, you know, eat your donuts, get your apple cider, pick some apples. And I want you to imagine with me, you're at, you're at the cider mill and you're picking apples. You're walking down those rows of apple trees and you're looking for the best apples. And the first tree you see, it's got lush green leaves. It's got dense, dark bark, straight trunk, strong branches that looks to hold hundreds of huge red apples just sparkling in the sun. You pull that apple off the tree, you kind of, oh, it's just shining. You take a big bite of it, it is crisp, it is juicy, it's wonderful, it's sweet. Then the next tree next to it, it looks pretty similar. It's got full green leaves, it looks to have some strong branches, but as you look closer... There are only a few apples on this tree. And the ones that are visible are small. And they kind of have a faded brown color to them. And when you pull these apples off the tree, they're soft to the touch. A little squishy. They almost come apart in your hand. And you know you're not taking a bite of that one. Now you don't have to be an arborist or have some sort of x-ray vision to look inside the tree to know which one of these trees is a healthy tree and which one is not. You can see by just looking at, what, the fruit. And Jesus illustrates that the quality of the tree is made evidence by its fruit, which we can easily understand just by observing nature. Yet he goes on to say that each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The fruit of a tree is not telling us just if the tree is healthy or sick, but is telling us about the nature of the tree itself. Right? We don't go to apple orchards expecting to pick oranges. And we don't go to orange groves expecting to pick bananas. We name them apple trees because they produce apples. And Jesus is making the point that if you can't separate the fruit of the tree, that the tree produces from the nature of the tree itself. Now, knowing that Jesus is about to go on to use this tree illustration to talk about people and the fruit of their own lives, you may be thinking, as I first did, I was studying this passage, that Jesus may be being a little too narrow, setting up these just two options, right? Surely there are trees that produce some good fruit and some bad fruit, right? Does the presence of any bad fruit make the whole tree bad? Does the presence of any bad fruit in my life make me a bad tree? To understand, I think, what Jesus is teaching here, we must understand first the type of literary device that he is using to make his point. In Luke 6, uh, Jesus is teaching us in parables that are different from the kind of the long-form parables that you see later in Luke's gospel, like the parable of the prodigal son. In our passage, Jesus is teaching through Proverbs, uh, which are kind of a type of parable. And Proverbs are meant to be short, they're meant to be memorable, and they're designed to pack a punch to make the hearer think. So if Jesus were to list all the possible exceptions to all the different, uh, to a general rule, it would kind of lose its proverbial punch. So therefore, Jesus is not trying to make a statement about all trees and their fruit, but rather stating a general principle that we all can understand and take to heart. The principle that if you look at the quality of the fruit, you can rightly judge the nature and the quality of the tree itself. And this principle ought to sober us because Jesus makes it plain in this illustration of the trees that their fruits are meant to be applied to the people and their treasure. Look down at verse 45 in your Bibles. 
the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Just as a tree produces fruit consistent with its nature, a person will produce fruit consistent with his or her nature. Just as the quality of the hidden parts of the tree are put on display through the fruit, the hidden person of the heart is put on display through our words and our actions. If you're not familiar with the the Bible, it's important to understand that the Bible often talks about our hearts, not in reference to the physical organ that pumps blood through our bodies, but as the source of all human thought, affection, and will. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, calls the heart, the wellspring of life. It is the center. It is the core of who you are as a person. And Jesus says here that our hearts are like storehouses or treasuries where we keep all the things that are most precious to us. The things that you think about in the quiet of your own heart. Your deepest desires, your greatest fears, your deepest longings and motivations are all stored in your heart. And Jesus makes it clear that what we treasure in our hearts will produce fruit that is consistent with our heart's treasure, whether for good or for evil. Now, oftentimes, uh, if you're like, we try to separate what we do with who we are, don't we? we maybe you've heard uh, the expression, uh, my mouth gets me in trouble sometimes, or how many of us have blamed our circumstances or our coworkers or our spouses or even our children for the things that we say or do that we later regret? And these are subtle tactics that we employ to convince ourselves that our actions do not say something about what is going on in our hearts. Yet Jesus is teaching that our fruit doesn't just pop out of nowhere And no one outside of us can make us produce good or bad fruit. But rather all of our fruit, all of our words, all of our actions are cultivated, are nurtured and fed from the inner person of the heart. And the Bible is consistent with this this teaching. Just a couple passages that illustrate this. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. James 4.1, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? We don't get to claim the good fruit as our own and blame others or God for the bad fruit. We must own it all and recognize that it is saying something about what is going on in our hearts. Therefore, this parable begs the question, What does the fruit of your life say about you? I wonder, when's the last time you examined the fruit of your life and considered what it says about you? What does it say is your greatest treasure? Maybe you've seen some bad fruit in your life, some habits that you've tried to get rid of, but I wonder... If you've maybe not done the hard work and got down to the root, or maybe you've employed the strategy like I have used before of taking off just the top of the weeds, only to see them sprout back up again. It's certainly never fun to be exposed. Uh, I I know I'd rather not take the time to look at the ugly fruit in my life that it's producing, 
like the weeds growing in my yard, but I, I know that ignoring the weeds and ignoring the things in our own life, right, they don't just go away. They grow much deeper, and they're harder to pull out much later. The work of examining our hearts is hard. It's humbling, but it is rewarding when we do it the right way and for the right reasons. So we have to ask, okay, how do we begin to examine the fruit in our lives? What's a good way to go about doing it? Well, at the end of the passage, Jesus points out that if you want to know what your heart is treasuring, we can first look at the words that come out of our mouths. Which brings us to our second point. Words and worship. Our words and worship. Jesus concludes this parable saying, Out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks, teaching that our words and our hearts are intricately connected. Therefore, our words will reveal what we worship. In just a moment, I want us to look at four examples or scenarios where our words reveal the treasure of our hearts. But before we go on this little treasure hunt, uh, it's important that we have a gospel mindset and gospel motivations before we expose our hearts uh, this morning. Because it would be very easy for us to go on this little treasure hunt and end up in despair because of what we find lurking uh, in the treasury of our hearts. And that's not my intention. We don't need to leave here in despair. We have a Savior who has saved us and has carried all our burdens. And so we don't want to leave in despair. But on the other hand, there's also another danger. We can be in danger of being puffed up. Because then you start to compare your fruit to others. And we start to believe, ah, we're, we're purer than, than most others. That's why this exercise will only be helpful if we remember the truths of the gospel. And what truths must we remember? Well, first, we must remember that all of us, as we've already talked about today, uh, start from the same place. All of us have hearts that have turned away from the Lord. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory... Or in other words, all have produced evil fruit and fall short of God's standard of goodness. And we would all rather judge ourselves by comparing our fruit to the tree next to us rather than to God's standard. Uh, We'd rather look to our neighbors or to the people that we see on the local nightly news. Uh, But God tells us that he is our standard of good. And no matter who you are, no matter how good your family is, no matter how many A's you've gotten on your report card, all of us are unfathomably separated from God's perfect character. So we need to remember that. And second, we must remember that the solution to that separation is not through our good works, but by a gift of grace. If we find ugly fruit on the trees of our hearts, it's natural for us to want to bury them in good works in hopes that we might be acceptable to God and to others. And we can fall into the trap of believing that God is weighing our spiritual fruit on his cosmic scales, and he's determining whether he will accept us based on our good deeds outweighing our evil deeds. And this is, my friends, is is not true. This is not the gospel. The good news of the gospel says that no amount of good works we can produce would ever make us acceptable before God, for it is by grace You have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
And since God, though, therefore, he's a loving God, he does not leave us under this weight, this chasm, uh, this standard that we can never keep. But instead, what did he do? He sent his perfect son to live the perfect life that we failed to live. Jesus is the only one who always produced good fruit, whose heart fully treasured God and never sinned. Yet though he was perfect, he was still despised, rejected by those whom he created, and he offered himself up that he might die the death our evil deeds deserved. He did so, friends, so that the people who were once his enemies could be called his friends. Not on the basis of their work, but that God credits Jesus' work to all who believe. We can fall into the trap that our bad deeds just require a little more effort or to clean ourselves up. But it requires more than that. It requires more than just raising a good family. It requires more than a little church attendance. It required the Son of God to die and to rise again so that the Spirit can give us new hearts, hearts that can produce good fruit for God. We also need to remember as we take a look into our, our hearts um, that any good work we do produce, we need to attribute it not to ourselves, but to the Holy Spirit. Um, the beautiful thing about being a Christian is that once you believe, you get united to Christ. And so all the good fruit that we produce, we can trace it all the way back, not to ourselves, but to Jesus who, who saved us. And when we fail, even though we know Jesus, even though we fail to produce good fruit, as we said earlier, we can remember the gospel truth that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are sealed, both past, present, and future, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Therefore, we seek to produce more good fruit, not to stay in God's good graces, but because we know that our hearts treasure, uh, when, we, when our hearts treasure Christ above all, that is when God gets the most glory and where we find most lasting joy, peace, contentment, no matter the circumstances. So we have to remember these truths first before we do battle with the fierce and deceitful enemy that lurks in our hearts. Okay, so now that we have that gospel mindset and our motivations, I, I want us to consider four examples. I think they're very relatable. And to see if we can't trace what comes out of our mouths with the treasure of our hearts. Uh, or another way we like to say it is we are looking for what our heart worships. And we do this not that we might, uh, we do this so that we might worship God as we were created to do. All right, let's start with uh, an easy one. Imagine with me you are at a grocery store in the checkout line. And you see a father with his three-year-old son. And they're putting items on the little conveyor belts there. And then you see it. This bright rainbow-colored candy has caught the attention of the boy. And he starts to reach for it. And you see him look up at his dad. And his dad shakes his head. And immediately, the boy starts screaming at the top of his lungs, But I want it! But I want it! And then proceeds to throw whatever he can within arm's reach. Now in that moment, we could blame the grocery store for setting up this precarious situation by putting the candy in such a tempting location. We could even want to blame the parent for not previously training the child to not act like this when he, when he doesn't get his way. But if we take seriously Jesus' teaching, 
we must first examine what the child's screams say about his heart. What does the child treasure? Well, yes, he, he does treasure candy in some sense. But more ultimately, this child treasures himself above anything. He is willing to scream and disobey his parents in order to get what he wants with no thought to anyone else. His words have exposed that he worships himself. Sure, the child may not put that in those terms, but that is exactly what is happening. Now let's turn our attention to the dad in this story. In response to his son's screaming, his face turns beet red. And in that firm, kind of whispery, yelly voice that dads have, you know, Stop it right now! You're embarrassing me! You're causing the scene! The son continues to cry. His voice gets, and his, the cries get louder. The dad's voice raises a little bit and says, Stop it right now! You're embarrassing me! When the son does not stop, you see the dad reach for that rainbow-colored candy and hand it to his son. Now what the father's words and actions, what do they say about what his heart treasures? His words at first might simply indicate a concern for others. Yes, the child was causing a scene. But the second statement indicates that he is not just concerned for others, but he is concerned about how he looks in front of others. He's embarrassed. To further make his heart motivation clear to all, he goes against his initial judgment and decides to satisfy his son's sinful desire in order to satisfy his own desire to please others. Even if he knows it is not the best decision for his son. Now please hear me, parents, when I say this. I am not passing judgment on all the times that we've given into our children's demands when the eyes are watching. Uh, yes, I know full well that there are often more things behind the scenes, uh, before, behind every tantrum. But nevertheless, it's important that we take time to examine our own hearts and to see what is truly motivating our actions in those precarious moments. Do we desire the opinions of others? Our comfort or control, so much so that we will sin or hurt others in order to get it. Let's consider another example. Let's do a biblical one. One of the Israelites. I know you guys are in Genesis right now, and you'll see, you'll see this uh, later um, in Exodus as he followed the Israelites' path. They have just been freed from slavery in Egypt. And they saw God do amazing wonders. And shortly after they crossed the Red Sea, what do they begin to do? Grumble and complain. And they say this. Would that we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now... What do their words say about what their hearts treasure? Now we might be able to say, well, their God is their stomach. They're thinking with their bellies. But I think we can even go deeper than that. They would rather have the security of slavery than trust the God who freed them. They would rather be full and die and be hungry and, than live under God's reign and rule. They wanted the comforts of home, even if it included slavery. 
Now, we may scoff at the Israelites' complaints here, but, but how many of us com- grumble and complain against God the moment we begin to feel the slightest bit of discomfort or lack of control in our lives? And when we grumble and complain about our jobs, about maybe our income or our schools, it is not a mere innocent chit-chat with one another, but often reveals a heart that is not trusting God, but rather seeking to take control from Him. One last one, and we'll do a positive example here. Imagine with me, you've recently received news that a good friend of yours uh, has been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and has only a few months to live. And of course, you're overcome with with sadness, and you hurry over to her home as soon as you can. And you maybe have been in a car like that, and you're trying to think, what am I going to say to this person? What am I going to say when I get there? And after you meet her and, and you cry together for some time, you begin to talk with one another and instead of having to minister to her she begins ministering to you she speaks about how grateful to God she is for your friendship how thankful she is for your support and instead of being angry with God your friend reminds you of how good God is and that she is praying that her funeral would be an opportunity for her family members who don't know Jesus to hear the gospel and the hope that she has beyond the grave What do the words of this suffering friend tell you about the treasure of her heart? Her words reveal a heart that treasures Christ and is more concerned about God's glory than even her own life. She's not asking for pity, but directing us to praise and to praise God for his grace in her life. Friends, all these examples, we, we've uncovered a variety of competing treasures that can have our hearts, and there are plenty more. Right? We can treasure respect, reputation, success or significance, love and intimacy. And all these things may not be bad in and of themselves, but when we treasure anything more than Christ and his glory, it no longer becomes just a natural desire of our hearts, but rather an idol of the heart that's contending for our worship. Anything you desire more than Christ and his glory becomes an idol. Anything you're willing to sin in order to get has likely become an idol in your life. And we can often spot these idols by considering what we worry about the most, what we fear most losing, or where do you think God has let you down? If God were to give you one wish right now, what would you wish for? Maybe the answer to that question would kind of show you what you treasure most. And whatever your particular idols may be in your heart, they will give temporary comfort when you pursue them, but they will quickly take it back. They will promise peace, but they will sometime or later deliver pain. They promise freedom, but they will only deliver bondage because these idols are never satisfied. You will never be able to accumulate enough money to satisfy the idol of wealth. You will never get enough compliments to satisfy the idol of praise. No spouse will satisfy the idol of pleasure. And no one will ever give you what you were only meant to get from God. Jesus warns us uh, about our hearts, idols, uh, in Matthew 6, 
He says this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that word money there can be interchanged with all sorts of different other things that we worship. There is not enough room in your heart for God and your idols. For God is not okay sharing worship with idols. God is righteously jealous for our hearts that he ransomed with his precious blood of his son. Therefore, we, he often will allow difficult circumstances, even suffering in our life, to reveal hidden idols that need to be removed. Circumstances like being stuck in traffic, being late to a meeting, or facing even the hardest of news, a cancer diagnosis. For those who are in Christ, though, God uses all these circumstances not just to expose us and expose our treasure, but to give us the opportunity to reorient our hearts and our hopes towards God. So therefore, brothers and sisters, when we realize that our words are harsh or angry, or you notice yourself giving yourself over to grumbling or giving over to gossip, that should be a signal to ask yourselves, ooh, what is going on in my heart? What am I treasuring that would produce those types of words? And when we identify the idolatry of our hearts before the Lord, he graciously calls us to confess our sins before the Lord, knowing that forgiveness is already ours in Christ, and then to turn our hearts to treasure Christ and to trust in him instead of our idols. And brothers and sisters, I want to hear... I want you here to say this. It is essential that we don't just identify an idol and then replace it with a new one that's more palpable to the community, right? It's be one thing to put off, um, see, the idol of alcohol and, and put on something that, uh, like gambling or something else. Like, you don't want to just trade one idol for another. We want to trade idolatry for true worship of the Lord. Now, we all know it's much easier as we think about all these idols and things in everybody else's life. Uh, it's easy to point out other people's sins rather than, uh, than our own. And oftentimes we are blind to our own idols and we need others' help to get rid of them. And friends, that's why the Lord has given us the body of Christ. Uh, a group of people who are not competing for personal glory but are eager to stir one another up to love and good deeds that we might better represent Christ on earth as we wait for his return. Uh, I personally uh, got to experience the blessing of this accountability of the body of Christ very recently. Um, I'm someone who wears my emotions on my sleeve, and so it's pretty easy uh, to kind of tell how I'm doing just by, by looking at me most of the time, but not all the time. So just, uh, but I, a couple weeks ago, I remember coming into a, uh, a staff meeting and I was very focused on myself. I had a list of things that I wanted to get done that day. And I want to control the day to make sure I got done what I needed to get done. So when something that I thought was kind of getting in the way of my plans, guess what? My words became short. My tone became a little ungrateful. My body language, body language made it very clear that I was not paying full attention to what was being said. Now, I may never have acknowledged uh, what my words and my actions were saying about my heart in that moment if it wasn't for a brother who came up to me shortly after that meeting and gently and graciously 
called me out for how I was acting. And you know what he did? He gave me the opportunity to examine my words, examine my actions, and ask for forgiveness, and to actually see what was going on in my heart, what my heart was treasuring to produce those types of words and actions. And brothers and sisters, we need one another if we are going to produce fruit that, that lasts and gives glory to God. And it may feel like a curse that our words reveal our hearts, but when you're in Christ, it is a grace to have an accurate assessment of where you're at spiritually. And so I wonder, do you have Christians in your life that are willing to gently point out the bad fruit in your life? And just as importantly, do you have Christians in your life that are eager to help you to see the good work that God is doing in your life? I wonder, uh, when's the last time you looked the person around you and pointed out the good fruit that you've seen in them? It's so easy uh, to focus on the bad, and especially after a sermon like this one. It's, all, it's so easy to focus on all the way our hearts fail to treasure Christ um, and miss the good fruit that God is producing in you. That's why we need one another in the body of Christ to encourage us to see what God is doing. And that is why you gather together every Sunday, church, to, uh, to do this. Um, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When you gather with God's people, you have the glorious opportunity to stir one another up to love and good works as we wait for the Lord's return. And so I hope, as an application today, that you would pull somebody aside, whether they're here or even if it's a text later in the day or a phone call, that you would call somebody, whether it be maybe even your pastor, and say, hey, I want to thank you for the good work that the Lord is producing through you. Encourage somebody in this church of what you see God doing. Wouldn't it be great if chapel would be the place when you know you came that you were going to be encouraged because people were ready and eager to stir you up to love and good works, to care for one another that God has called the body of Christ to do. Remember, church, uh, the goal for producing good fruit is not to make much of ourselves, but to make much of Christ. So when you're generous and forgiving and you point others to Jesus, when you love your enemies and you're patient with others, you display a love that is strange to the world, a love that only can be possible through somebody who has a new heart in Christ that God has given us by his spirit. I'm going to close this morning uh, with one more tree illustration that the Bible gives us, uh, a tree illustration from Jeremiah 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. And as I read this, I want you just to think about the two trees that they're talking about here. Think down into the roots and think what tree you want to be described as. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in the uninhabited salt land. Here's the second tree. 
But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, what kind of fruit are you producing? What kind of fruit, and what does your fruit say about your heart's treasure? May we all commit today to know Christ as our greatest treasure, that we may produce fruit that gives him glory and blesses all who see it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning that, and the reminders of the grace that we have in Christ. Thank you for giving us new hearts by your spirit that have the ability to grow in grace and produce fruit that testifies to your saving work in our lives. Forgive us for the many ways that we do not walk in step with your spirit that you gave us. And would you give us eyes to see the idols of our hearts and give us the strength to turn from them and worship Christ and Christ alone. Help us, Lord, to be people full of the spirit, full of the fruit of the spirit, so that all may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. As we now turn our hearts to praise into the Lord's table, would you cleanse our hearts as we remember the sacrifice of your Son on the cross for us, that we might live with you forever. And all God's people said, Amen.